following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 9th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here, and I get to spend time with us together in God's Word this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, Go ahead and open them up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I'm curious, how many of you would agree with me when I say that people are messy? Any, any takers on that one? People are messy. Now, we all agree and raise our hands, but we all have someone else in mind. So, how many of you would agree with me that you are messy? There we go. I'm messy. What that means is that when you take self-admittedly messy people and you put them together, families are messy. Churches are messy. And as we've spent time in God's word and Paul's letter to this church in Thessalonica, we have continued to see that Jesus is the best news for messy people. There is no greater news for messy people than Jesus. He has always been that way. And while we're not yet what we will be, we're not even yet what we desire in heart as followers of Jesus to become. We're not yet there. He's got us going in the right direction. We're still a bit messy, but, but he's at work. The reality of it is, while we're still a bit messy... It would be naive or even foolish of us to think that when you bring messy people together and messy people begin to learn to live together, messy people who have all manner of experience and background and things they have gone through and all of it comes together, it, there's bound even headed in the right direction to be a little tension. There's bound for a few disagreements to arise on how things ought to be. As we bring all of these experiences and all of these preferences and all of these patterns together, even in a local church, and we're learning together to surrender those things to God's will that we live pleasing to him, it, it's going to create some tension. It does now. It, it always has, Right? Just imagine uh, this church that Paul is writing to, right? Let's, let's think about them for just a second. Just try to imagine, if you can, first century Greco-Roman world, right? All that we may or may not know about them. We, it, as stratified and in various ways segregated that we feel like our world and our culture may still be in America based on different things, we pale in comparison to the Greco-Roman world. Right? The way that their culture was set up and established had layers upon it. It was like an onion skin, right? And now the gospel has come to a place like Thessalonica. And, and people have seen and heard the glory of God in the person of Jesus. They've turned from their idols and with a living faith to Christ. And now together as a people, they bring their mess citizens of a Greco-Roman world and foreigners, same place. Slaves in the same room as free men. Romans, Greeks, 
Jews, barbarians, which just meant people from other regions in the area, all now together in the same place, taking the same bread and the same cup and worship of the same true God. Shoulder to shoulder as equals, citizens, foreigners, men, women, everything about their life as God's people cut directly across every societal and cultural norm in the world they lived in. And they brought all of that, right? All of their history, all of their experience, all of their lifestyles, all of their patterns, all of their preferences, all of it. They brought it together. And we're now learning how to surrender it all to the will of God in order to live pleasing to him and with one another. It's bound to be some mess. There's bound to be some tensions. There's bound to be a few different ways of, of understanding things and applying things that would need to get worked out, right? Where there's smoke, there's inevitably fire. And where there's messy people, there's going to be mess that's going to have to be continually cleaned up, right? So as we pick back up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 9. And the grammar there, we really won't get into it, but the grammar seems to indicate that Paul is going to start addressing some things that Timothy may have brought back to him along with his good report. He brought back a good report about the church. They're standing strong. Their confidence is still in Christ. They're, they're doing well, but there are some things that we probably need to talk about. Some questions they had, some tensions that were arising in that local church. Things they had brought in and were now trying to figure out how to, how to live out in order to please God. And, and so Paul is going to weigh in on some of those. He's going to clarify, he's going to give some direction, and he's going to help them see these things through the lens of the gospel, to see with new gospel eyes, and remind them that we can live pleasing to God, and we can live pleasing to God even in the most ordinary of stuff, the most everyday stuff of life, right? right? There is no insignificant moment in the life of a Christian. And the seals are famous for saying there's no easy day. The church should take of its motto, there's no insignificant day. There's no insignificant moment. The kingdom of God, the lordship of Christ, the surrender of his people to him and his will means that every single moment, even in the most ordinary of things of daily life on this earth, are full of extraordinary potential, of extraordinary significance. They matter in what it means to live pleasing to God. It matters in what it means to reflect something of him to a watching world. And it's in this ordinariness in some sense that Paul was going to reorient the eyes of God's people to see its significance as he helps them address some of the tensions that have arisen amongst them and give them an increasing picture of how they can continue to live a life pleasing to God. So let's pick it up in verse 9. Paul says this, Now concerning brotherly love, so there must be something here that, that, that's going on. I, I got to deal with it. You know, concerning brotherly love, I, I hear from Tim there's some concerns, right? You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And that's not what you expected when I said there were problems, right? That sounds pretty good. Right? But Paul is going to actually start here 
And in a little while, as we keep going, we'll see he's going to expand their understanding of this. But the first thing he's going to deal with is this issue of brotherly love. Now, here's a fun fact for you, right? You probably know more than you think. I bet you know the word that we translate brotherly love. I bet you know. You probably don't think you do, but I bet you know the Greek word. What do you think it is? Philadelphia. That's the Greek word. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Sports fans, right? It's the city that booed Santa, right? That threw beer cans and sandwiches at him, right? That's the brotherly love city, right? Philadelphia. So Paul's first concern, and really it's from this concern that what he's going to say is going to flow out of. It's the context of everything he's going to say is this issue of brotherly love. Now, I don't want to run past it too quick because I want you to think about it maybe in a different way for the first time if you've been around the church for a long time, right? Brotherly love, to, to hear this read, to see it written in this letter from Paul would have been astounding to this church, right? He took a word that was very familiar to them, very normal for them. It's not a church word. It was a normal word. A word that in every usage, even when it's used in other places in the New Testament, but in particular in the life of the first century Greco-Roman world, a word that is used in every instance to speak of a relationship between people who share blood. Parents and children. Siblings. It carries with it the fidelity, the loyalty, the affection, the expectation, the bond that, that biology and blood brings to a family. That's how it's used. And they all understood that. And Paul takes this word with all of that freight in it. And for the first time, because this is the oldest book we have in the New Testament, the oldest letter we have in the New Testament. For the first time in the New Testament, he takes that word and he applies it to the church. He applies it to the people who have tasted the goodness and mercy of God's grace in Jesus. He says, for all the affection and the commitment and the intensity and the loyalty that you have with your siblings, with your biological family, it pales in comparison to that which exists between those who have tasted the grace of God in Christ. He completely redefines it for them. I labor on that for just a second because for the last probably 15, 20 years, Spiritual family, church as family, all that stuff, it's been pretty hot to talk about. And whenever something gets pretty hot to talk about in the church and it gets used in, in every way, shape, form, or fashion and language, it ultimately loses its value over time eventually. So if you've been in the church for any period of time or you grew up in the church in, in the area in which, in which I did in the last 20 years, you've heard about the church as family over and over and over again, but you've probably never actually thought about the weight. You probably actually never thought about the magnitude of the bond, the extensiveness of the loyalty, the depth of the affection that that phrase is meant to connotate. We talk about it like family, but I don't know that we've ever really thought about it when it comes to how we view the church, how we view God's people. This would have been orientation-shifting, mind-blowing for this church, right? I wonder if we've ever stopped long enough to actually consider it ourselves. 
or if it's just been a great buzzword for books and websites that we value spiritual family. Oh no. Well, you don't like something and we value another family. Or I, don't, I don't know. Like we're, I'm not sure. I don't know if we've ever really thought about it. Like consider the depth of what God has done in Christ and the bond that he has created between brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is where Paul takes their attention, right? And of this brotherly love, then he says this, which is kind of surprising. You have no need for anyone to write to you about it. Right? It's not like Paul doesn't have anything to say. It's not even like Paul hasn't said a lot about it already in the letter. Right? He's pointed out the evidences of God's grace flowing out of them in relation to their love for one another and everyone around them already in this letter, right? He spent a considerable amount of ink and time on that. It's not like there isn't something to say. It's not like he doesn't have thoughts. It's not like he hasn't noticed it. He says something else, though. You have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. They would have had to look at whoever was reading the letter and like, what did he just say? Because he literally made up a word. Just a moment ago, he took that was familiar to them, Philadelphia, and used it to redefine the relationship that this local church had. These people with absolutely varied experiences and backgrounds, together with nothing in common but Jesus, and said, your bond now is deeper and tighter and more loyal and more affectionate than that of your family. Then he makes up a word. When he says you've been taught by God, the word that we translate there, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the New Testament, in the entire Bible, or in the Greek language anywhere else in that time. It's like he literally just had to think, what, what was going to communicate what I'm trying to say, right? He literally said, you are God taught. God has taught you this. And in trying to understand why he would make up such a word to try to communicate what he's trying to say. Most historians think he's drawing on a number of promises that God had made to his people through the prophets about this very thing, and he's trying to bring it all together. Like when God spoke to Israel through Isaiah and and said, all of your children will be taught of the Lord. And the promises of God through the Messiah to come, all of your children will one day be taught by the Lord. Or the promises that God made to his people through Ezekiel, right? I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? The promise of God to his people was when the Messiah comes, and now on this side of the cross in the life of Paul in this church and in our life, we, we know that to have been true in Jesus. When he comes, he's going to give you a new heart. He's going to literally take up residence in that heart by his spirit. And on that heart, what had been an external demand of God, he is going to inscribe now on that heart so that it's no longer an external duty that you think you have to do in order to please God. It's going to become an internal delight and affection to do. And his very spirit has taken up residence to increasingly fan into flame that affection to live pleasing according to his will, which is inscribed on your heart. So he's going to empower you then to do the very thing he wills for you to do, the very thing he has inscribed now on the heart that he has now given you. Many think Paul is taking these promises, putting them together, right? And helping the church to understand 
that the law of God summed up in love, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself is literally inscribed on their very heart. So the Christians in whom the Holy Spirit dwells don't really need to be told to love one another. Not because we do it perfectly, we need to be reminded, but don't need to be told to love one another truly because the very heart of God, the very law of God, the very delight of God is inscribed upon our hearts and it becomes the very delight of God's people to do, right? Something, again, worth spending a few minutes of your time this week just considering. Now, Paul is setting some things up. He's he's just pointing this out because he says in verse 10, this is what's really happening in their hearts and lives. Verse 10, for indeed, this is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, right? So again, he's pointing out the evidences of God's grace. God has taught you this. He has inscribed this upon your heart. The Spirit has taken up residence in you. You are now delighting to do the very thing that pleases him, and we can see it, right? It's evident. Love is flowing in them and from them and through them, not just to one another in the local body, but it extends beyond that into the entire region, right? And you can go and you can read in Paul's other letters, like in 2 Corinthians, how he notes that the Macedonian Christians, the region in which Thessalonica was located, were particularly known for their poverty, actually. They had gone through some difficult circumstances and times, but when Paul came to those churches again to tell them about what was going on in Jerusalem and the persecution and the famine that was happening, those that were rich in poverty gave lavishly of what they had to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, who they had never seen. There's no Google Earth for them to look at the church. And there's no Twitter for them to know all what's going on. Paul just said, these are your brothers and sisters. Philadelphia took over. Brotherly love. A God-taught love inscribed upon their heart, empowered by his spirit and fanned into flame. And though the region was known for not having much, they gave everything they had for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. In his next letter, you can go and read it later this week, he'll mention particularly how they were, how they were giving and free with their resource to other churches in the region, Philippi, Berea, how they gave food and anything that was necessary for the brothers, the sisters in the church, in Christ, to be taken care of, to be sustained. This love was evident in them and flowing through them, right? One writer said it this way, this church did not see the other congregations in their their region as sources for its own benefit, right? They didn't see the body of Christ through the lens of a consumer, what they could get from them, but rather they reversed the flow by extending love in the form of economic benefit to others in all of its regions, in all of its hinterlands, and even beyond the whole of the province. This is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Friends, it would take an entire morning for me to recount for 20, 15 years now the ways that we've seen that in you. This is what God has been doing in and through you in, in this place. Maybe we should take a, a, a morning one time to talk about it just so you can fully understand the way that your generosity has been able to benefit not just the needs of the body here, but in this city and the tens and the thousands of dollars that we've been able to give for other churches in this city. 
to be able to buy their buildings, to find a place to be, to begin to establish local congregations. Churches throughout the region, Roanoke in the earliest days, Baltimore right after that. How we've been able to partner with other churches to be able to, to extend this kind of generosity to them and even to one another in, in times of great need in the way that you've given to the benevolence account and the way that it's used to meet needs of people not only here but even in this city. How over the years we, we've brought particular needs, un, uncommon needs that we don't even meet with the budget that we set aside for, but things that are happening not just here in the States, but even globally. And, and, and like those Macedonian churches, you've just out of love come and met those needs over and over again. It would take a morning to be able to recount all of these things. But all of them, all of them are evidence of a God-taught love. Paul, I think, would, would say to you as I would say to you on his behalf, we see it. Just like he did to them. We, I see it. And we see it. But then he says, we urge you, brothers, to do it more and more. Keep at it, right? It's not something that you arrive at. That once you arrive at brotherly love, now you've actually achieved it, let's move on to something else. No, it's something for which Paul taught us to pray, and, and I hope, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we take for our prayer for ourselves and this body this year, that this love overflows in such a way that it knows no bound or container that can, that can hold it, that it just continues to increase. Paul says, keep going, keep loving, right? God is teaching you this. He has written it on your heart. He is fanning it into flame. He's empowering your obedience in it. Keep at it. Yet there are still lessons to learn, right? There are things and tensions that have been arising within the body, and we're going to have more familiarity with them than we probably think. And so in the next verse, Paul is going to take them on a journey through a few particular expressions or qualities or, or demonstrations of this brotherly love. He wants to expand their view, in some sense, of how Philadelphia is lived out, how it's demonstrated. And it's not in the ways you and I might think. He's already celebrated the ways you and I tend to think about it. He's already pointed out the evidences of it. Now, he's going to deal with something else that's probably been stirring around that we can pay attention to. This is what he says, verse 11. Same sentence, same thought. Right? If you're following along, not on the screen or in the Bible in front of you, but maybe you have an NIV, the NIV tries to translate the meaning of this grammatically by ending a sentence and starting a new one. That's not how it works. This is all one sentence in the way Paul wrote it. So what he's about to say is connected to the brotherly love he's just been talking about. It's very important to see. Paul says this. He gives us a few demonstrations. Verse 11, aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we've already instructed you. Now, before we try to spend some time in these different demonstrations and try to understand, in a sense, what he's after and how it's even reflected now for us together, let me be really honest with you about maybe the context in which he's writing. I told you earlier, there's some evidence in the letter that he's addressing some things that have already been brought back to him. Right? So there's some things he's got to continue to strengthen them in and clarify them in. I wish he would have been really more specific about what they were. Right? Scholars and historians of the years who have studied his letters would, would write in all, their, in all their works, I wish Paul would just be more clear and tell us exactly what the problem was. 
Without him telling us, you have to look at other things he's written. We have another letter to this church. And other things we know that were going on in the city and in the place at the time. And you can try to extrapolate a little bit of what might have been happening. And there were two things most scholars think Paul is addressing. One or the other or a combination of both. So I'll be fair to you and I will tell you what they both are. But at the same time, we don't know exactly. The first is cultural. The second is theological. The first one being cultural is that in the Greco-Roman world in, in this time and in Paul's day... There was a system that had been established a century before that was, that was a cultural system for the way people related to each other, and it was called the patronage system. Have you ever heard about this before? Very common in, in this day, very common in Thessalonica. It's basically this. A wealthier member of society in a higher social status or, or, or space in society would take clients, the patron would take clients, and they would give them food, give them money. They would set up some type of contract between themselves and the client who was always of a lower socioeconomic status in the community. And he would give them money, give them food, give them clothing. In return, the client would promote the patron in public everywhere they went. As I was talking to my wife about this this week, she reminded me, that's just first century influencer culture. And yes, that's what it was, Right? The patron would go get as many influencers as he could. And in return for whatever gift that he would give the client, the client would then go and promote the patron in public. Now, you think about it. These, these mostly wealthy, higher-level status patrons also had different civic privileges, oftentimes voting in different matters. So if a client was a citizen and he was a patron of a voting member of society, that client could also vote. The more clients you had, and you had your own issues you're trying to put forward, the more votes you had. But think about it, even like influencer culture, as I thought about it, right? You're over here, and, and you're on the dole from the patron. Like, he's taking care of you, and you're not promoting him. But at the same time, you kind of get this delusion in your mind that you're actually in on the know, right? Like, you're in, and you're really not, right? Like the influencers, right? You tend to get so close to the sun, you think you're there, but you're not. You're really just over here. And so there were all these people. It was happening in the church. It was the, the climate of the culture. There were these patron-client relationships going on. Some think what Paul is saying here is addressing that reality happening within the church. I think he might be. It's fair. But there's another thing, and it's theological in mind, although that has theological implications. The, the other one being more directly theological and we see it more in his second letter. And this is why some people think this is what he's talking about. Because he comes back to it in 2 Thessalonians. So there were some in the church who, having heard the gospel and, and surrendered their life to Jesus and the promise of his return to make all things right, right? To, to, to a new heavens and a new earth and an eternity with him. They got so caught up in that promise that they believed it was imminent and it was about to happen. They were our modern day end times fanatics, right? They probably had the felt boards and the stickers and the whole deal, right? Whatever that was back then. So what happened, and we know it from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, is that some of them quit working. So caught up in the idea that Jesus was returning today or tomorrow, they quit working. That gave them a whole lot of free time. A whole lot of free time to get all up in everybody else's life. A whole lot of free time to walk out into the square and into the city and tell everybody else how bad they were. Now, what do you think that did to those who were already persecuting the church? It only stirred it up. What do you think that did to those who were living out their brotherly love on these who weren't working, but you're having to constantly take care of them, but they're causing trouble? 
whichever Paul is addressing, and I think he's addressing both, what he's saying applies to them both. What he's encouraging here as demonstrations of brotherly love hits both square on, right? And the first thing Paul says is to aspire to live quietly. God-taught love aspires to a quiet life. Now, there's a bit of an oxymoron going on here. This is ambition and aspiration, right? We tend to think about very active things with ambition and aspiration, right? A lot of energy, a lot of effort, right? He literally says, aspire, make it your ambition to live quietly, right? Now, he's not talking about the way that you and I tend to think about. Okay, I don't know about you. I'll say me. He's not talking about aiming to live a quiet life. So what's the furthest, yet closest place that I can go and be away from all of you? <laughs> Where I don't have to hear or think about or be confronted with you or myself, Right? Where's that quiet place and that quiet life? Paul Paul isn't talking about retreating from people. He's not talking about retreating from activity. There was no one more diligent in their life, in their love, in their effort, and in their energy than Jesus, right? But yet he lived a quiet life, a life rooted in the sovereignty and will of the Father, A life lived for the pleasure of the Father. A life governed by the reality of the steadfast love of the Father. And it freed him to not live agitated and and worried. It's It's a quiet life. In part that is born out of a quiet soul, right? The opposite of a quiet life, as I was trying to think about it this week to make it as clear as I could, but the opposite of a quiet life would be a loud life. And if a quiet life is one that is lived pleasing to God, overflowing in love towards others, then a loud life has to be a life that's pretty much lived to please me. I love me some me. And if there's anything that we struggle with in today's society and world, it's a loud life. Right? If I can just get more people to pay attention to my life, and I've got more tools and more mechanisms to make it happen. Right? I'll call them my online community, but if I can get more people to pay attention to my life, right, what I mean is just people paying attention to me. G.K. Chesterton said, how much larger would your world be if you were only smaller in it? Let's flip it to 1 Thessalonians. How much quieter would your life be if you were just smaller in it? Essentially, a, a quiet life, like Paul is talking about, is a humble life. For me, John the Baptist, at least this week, captured it better than anybody else as I was thinking about this and and where we see it in the scriptures. When Jesus shows up on the scene, the one for whom he's been prophesying, John's been prophesying about, John's been waiting for. You remember what he said? He sees Jesus and he realizes who he is. And his instinct is, he must increase. I must decrease. I've got to decrease. I've got to be so much smaller in my world. He is the one that that has to increase. 
I mean, who here thinks about their life like that, right? I mean, who here thinks about the life they live here and now, right now, through the lens of, I've got to be decreasing. I've got to be decreasing. There's nothing in the world in which we live that feeds and encourages that. That is the quiet life that Paul is talking about here. Friends, we've got to plead with God's spirit who's taken up residence in our hearts to keep helping us to change our thinking. We are constantly bombarded with tools to and energy for building a world to look at ourselves and to come and see my life, to build our own life the way we breathe and live as some kind of brand for the world to see. It's a loud life. And I don't know, one of you can help me with this. I'm not saying I've got this right, but I find it very hard when I see that in my own heart to reconcile it with the humility of John the Baptist or the humility of Jesus or a life pleasing to God that's, that's spent loving other people. Because here's the reality. For me, right, maybe it's true for some of you. I find it very difficult to be occupied with loving others. Seeing them, sacrificing for them, paying attention to their needs, expressing this brotherly love in a meaningful, tangible way towards them, I find it very hard to be focused on loving others when my heart is focused and preoccupied with making myself an interesting person that other people want to look at and focus on. It's very hard to be interested in other people when most of your attention, your time, and your desire is spent trying to make yourself interesting so that other people can look in and want to be a part and see. Make it your aspiration to live a quiet life, a humble life. It's what Paul taught Timothy to pray for, right? First Timothy chapter 2. Man, we've spent all morning on this one. Right? Make intercessions and supplications for all those in high positions. Why? That we could lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life, dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. A quiet life, a, a humble life, peaceful, quiet, dignified in every way. That pleases God. That, my friends, is attractive to a watching world. Humility is attractive to a world that's so self-consumed. Let's make it our ambition to decrease. What's our ambition as a people this year? How about that we decrease? That we decrease and make it our strive and our ambition to live quietly and humbly that Jesus might increase in our affection, but increase not only in us, but through us in love to others, right? Would you be willing to Consider that for the year ahead. Strive to live a quiet life, Paul says, right? And then he says this, and mind your own affairs. This is what love looks like. This is what he's talking about, remember? Mind your own affairs. But in his next letter, he literally says this, we hear that some among you are walking, living in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That's the word he used. Busy bodies. 
You become so preoccupied with other people's worlds, other people's lives, other people's interests, you've not been able to tend to your own life. You've not stewarded your own life, your own soul, your own heart, your, your own everything in front of you well because you're so preoccupied with everybody else. Look me in the eye and tell me that is not a problem for us in the 21st century. Feels like this is a world removed when you read it until you consider the way that we spend so much of our time on a daily basis. Our connected world is literally designed to draw other people's attention into our world, into our life. A life that, if we're really honest, we we only put portions of it out there for people to be drawn into and to see, but then we do the same thing. We're drawn, preoccupied into their worlds and their lives. There are literally algorithms out there that are constantly ruling our hearts and our minds, filling our worlds and our attentions with other people's worlds. And if we're not careful, they keep us from cultivating our own life and our own soul. All of it, this entire structure at work, it it doesn't feed my humility. It doesn't doesn't feed and tend a a quiet life in me. It it feeds my pride. I mean, every time I come across it, no matter what it is, whatever, whatever it is you're showing me online through whatever these systems are, there's something right there. It doesn't even depend on what the tool is. There's something right there that tells me that I'm supposed to have input on it. Right? There's a reaction button somewhere, a thumb up, a thumb down, a heart this, a like this. A do, I, I'm supposed to have input on this. It matters, right? You, you want it or you wouldn't put it there, Right? Or every time the algorithm serves up the latest crisis that it's figured out is going to push a button, I have to have a take on it, right? It's asking me what my hot take is on this thing that it's giving me. And somehow, when I'm going through all that, what's really happening is that my life isn't enough. My world isn't enough. I have to have hot takes and comments on yours. I have to have hot takes and comments on what you like and don't like and how you do this and don't do this. And before I know it, my life isn't enough. My life ultimately doesn't matter. What's preoccupied in my heart and my mind is everything else. Everyone else's world. Listen, friends, you do not have to have an opinion on everything. Let me free you. You do not have to have an opinion on everything. In fact, you probably shouldn't. I don't. I can't tell you the number of times people ask my opinion on 10,000 different things. It's so easy for, pa- I'll speak for pastors for pastors, to get so caught up in this pressure to have formulated, thought-through opinions on 10,000 different things you would have never even been exposed to or known about 10 years ago. And my standard answer is generally this. I don't have an opinion. I could probably get one if I spent time trying to think about and read about and consider what you're asking me about, but I don't feel the need to, because I don't feel the need to have an opinion on everything. Now, some of you are are very good at giving me the words of the opinion you think I should have (laughs) and how I could express the opinion, but we don't have to have an opinion on everything. And if you do feel like you have an opinion that needs to be shared, Let me give you some guidelines. Share that opinion 
with God's glory in view and the strengthening of your brother and sister in mind, right? If you've got the hot take that has to get shared. But mind your own affairs. We don't have to be able to, we don't have to be able to sound off on it all. Love leads us to be faithful stewards of our lives. So one writer said, this command has potential to free us from 10,000 distractions and temptations and to cultivate virtues that honor God and serve others. Virtues like a humility that makes me more aware of my sin than others. A contentment that doesn't focus on what I lack. A faithfulness that focuses on my responsibilities and not the endless distractions that abound with having to weigh in and give my take on everything. Aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. These are demonstrations of brotherly love. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. Is he dealing with clients who are taking resources from wealthy patrons in order to promote them in public? Is he dealing with a portion of the church that has quit working and is living off the brotherly love and generosity of the church? They think Jesus is coming back tomorrow and they they don't want to go work and take care of themselves. But they're busy in everybody's lives. Probably both. Both were probably happening. It addresses both. Because both have failed to see the connection between Jesus and their everyday. Between Jesus and their labor. Between Jesus and their work. And that Jesus doesn't exempt them from the responsibilities of their life. Remember the context. Paul's not writing to deal with their work ethic, right? He's dealing with their love. That's what he's correcting. Their view of brotherly love has gotten so narrow that it's missed that the very gift that God has given them of work is a gift that allows or is the venue for the expression of this brotherly love. This love doesn't exploit other people. Just like we saw last week when Paul dealt with our our sexual behavior and sexual ethics. This love doesn't exploit other people, right? It gives. It sacrifices. It blesses. Quite literally here, it works, right? Now, Paul's not giving a a systematic theology, a complete biblical understanding of work and labor and calling and vocation. He's dealing with one issue. So we're just going to deal with this issue, right? The work that God has given us, which is a gift. Being able to work is, is part of what it is to be created in his image and likeness as a worker, as a creator, as a steward of creation, meant to labor in our callings and giftings to unearth the potential of what God has embedded within his creation to his glory, right? The, the gift of being a worker. Paul had already taught him. He's like, we've already told you this, right? It is a vehicle and a means that God has given us by which we can care for ourselves and our family. But this is about Philadelphia. This is about brotherly love. Your work is the means by which God frees you up to be sacrificially generous with others and not dependent upon them. It frees you up to increasingly live in this life of brotherly love. Sacrificially generous with your life. In some sense, financially, right? Your work allows you to take care of the needs of your family. But if you saw it through the lens of brotherly love and the life of God's people and the work of the gospel in and through God's people, 
It might lead you to establish a particular standard of living even as your income increases. You don't increase your standard of living because you want to be increasingly generous and loving towards God, his people, and his work. It's a completely different orientation of understanding your work and why you work. And not just even your work. You can move beyond financially. That's what he's talking about. This brotherly love, it, through the lens, we see our lives are it's radically generous even emotionally. Because we're not getting so wrapped up in this cultural ecosystem that we get sucked into that we have nothing left of ourselves to give. So preoccupied with everything else around us, right? No, the more we continue to decrease, the more humility begins to take hold and shape. The more space there is for the love of Christ, the brotherly love to not only grow in us, but be extended through us, right? Right, young and old alike, I don't think this is just for young people getting started in their vocations and work world. I think it's for all of us because of the world in which we live in. The lens through which Paul is trying to help this church see its work in relation to the tensions that are being created is, is this idea that the aspiration of our work and of our labor, it, it's not to be wealthy, right? That's not the aspiration for our work. It's not to be famous, it's not so that we can have extended time in leisure and all the vacation spots so we can instant tell everybody where we are because we're not working anymore, right? That's not, the, ins- that's not the, the aspiration, I should say, of work in this context. Love is the aspiration for our work. Love is the orientation through which we're to see our work, right? Young people in particular who are just getting started Please don't aspire to work just enough so that you can figure out how to go pour the majority of yourself into a hobby that you like. A friend of mine is a pastor in Portland, and the tagline for the city for Portland for a long time was Portland, where young people go to retire. Right? If your vision of work is to do just enough so that you can spend your life, your time, your energy, and your resource on doing the thing you're into right now, that's not love. This is what Paul's getting after. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's what that is. That's not quiet. That's loud. Parents in here, where do you think they pick up these aspirations? Where do you think they pick up these orientations on how they understand not only the vocations in which God may call them into, but how they understand the lens through which they see that life? I've got a 17-year-old trying to figure out what's next. Where do you think his lens for the orientation of why he's studying, why he's working, why he's trying to do all those things, where do you think he's going to pick up the lens through which he's going to understand those things? It's through us, through parents. What do they see reflected in you? What's the orientation through which they have absorbed and continue to absorb when they look at you and your work and your life and what drives you and what moves you? Why you're doing what you're doing. Not in the, I'm really good at math, therefore I do this, but in the why you're working and what you're using those skills and those gifts and then the blessings of that work towards How do they observe your open-handed generosity, right? 
How are they watching you use those skills and gifts to serve others in love, right? Love works quite literally. And Paul is talking to a very consumption-oriented people and a people whose lives are probably best classified as net importers of things and not exporters of love, right? And Paul asked this question of the church, is our ambition to work so that our lives can be generous because we know that this is just another way that we talk about love, right? Aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own affairs and to work. Use your own hands to labor so that you can love. Why? Look at what he says, verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Right, the motivating factor here that Paul gives them is that people will look at their life and see a reflection of Jesus and want to know more, right? That's what he's saying. And here's the thing. I, I read this. I, I wrestle with this. I consider our lives together as a church. I consider my own life. And the picture that Paul is painting seems so far off if I'm really going to admit it. It seems so out of reach sometimes because I'm still so messy. Because we're still so messy. Praise God as we read this. We don't have to read it as God giving us some kind of pep talk and instructions to go out and do better, right? This love that Paul is directing their hearts to is a love that is not only born of God, but it's taught by God in our very hearts. It's empowered by God's spirit that's taken up residence in our heart. A power stronger than any temptation towards a self-oriented life. It has literally taken up residence in our hearts, fanning in flame our affections to love the way that we have been loved and empowering us to then live in such a way that that love is expressed. It's not left up to us to be able to do it. He's at work in us to make it a reality. That's what makes what Jesus said in John 13 a new command. He said, a new command I give you that you love one another as I've loved you. The command to love was always the summation of the law. What makes it new is now that we do it in the way that he's loved us. We do it out of the love that we have received from him as a reflection of that love. That's the staggering thing because every single one of us is so unlovable. There wasn't a thing about me that in any way, shape, form, or fashion attracted him to love me the way that he's loved me. Nothing about me deserved the love with which he had shown me. Everything about my life disregarded him and the love that he held out to me. Yet for no other reason than the fact that he is love. He sent his son to took on, take on flesh and live a life of perfect love. A life deserving of eternal life. And then he offered that perfect life of love as a sacrifice in my place for my self-consumed, self-focused life. And God in his justice and God in his mercy received that sacrifice. Three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb so that now, whoever 
places their faith in Jesus and his life of love live for them. And we're not only forgiven of all of our self-love and forgiven for all of our self-consumption and forgiven for all the loveless ways with which we continue to live, but he gives us a new heart with his command to love as he's loved us etched on it. And he's given us his very spirit to fan it into flame and to empower us to do it so that we can live pleasing to the Father and overflow in this kind of love to one another. It's in Jesus that messes like you and I and messes like the local church can love in ways that please God. We can love as we've been loved. And it's God-taught, spirit-enabled, Christ-exalting. Friends, we're more like the Thessalonians than we realize at first, right? But just like them, every moment is a chance to love deeper and to strengthen one another and to reflect to a very frantic and self-absorbed world the grace and beauty of Jesus. And here's the great thing. We don't do it alone. We do it as a family. A family whose bond is quite literally stronger and deeper than blood itself. A bond born out of the blood of Jesus. And the grace of God shown to us through his son. May it be our ambition to decrease. May it be our ambition to live quietly. May it be our ambition to steward our hearts and our lives well. May it be our ambition to see our lives and even the callings of the ordinary and the vocations God has given us through the lens of love for one another and love for him so that a watching world might see something. An attractive, humble, generous, loving life. See something of the Father. Let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond. Father, this is the most unnatural thing to me. It's the most unnatural thing to us. It requires supernatural work by your spirit for us to love the way that you've loved us. I want to love myself. I want my interests. I want my satisfactions. I want my pleasures. I love me some me. And it takes a supernatural work by your spirit for me to decrease, that Jesus would increase in my heart, in my affections, in my delights, and that he might increase not just in me, but through me. Lord, that's true for all of us. And so we ask that you would continue to do by your grace and the work of your spirit what only you can do in us, and you would do it in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.